0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning, Oak City Church. Thanks for tuning in. Um, Thanks uh, to Julie and Hannah and Jake for leading us in worship. Um, I mean, there's something powerful about being in this room alone. And uh, just being like in the spaces where you guys normally are and praying for you. And I look forward to the day when we're all here together again. If you're visiting us, man, we look forward to the day that we can meet you face to face here on a Sunday morning. We have a routine of, as a church. We ask people to fill out a connect card every week. And that connect card gives us a ch- chance to connect with you and to pray for you. And so that's on the it's on the Web page used to get to the live stream uh, from if you did the, from our um, from our uh, Oak City homepage. And um, we'd love for you to to fill out some prayer requests. Let us know what God's doing that you're thankful for uh, so we can pray for you throughout the week. Um, And if you're new and would like some more information about the church, there's a box that you can click at the bottom. We are going to have a Good Friday service this Friday night. So 7 p.m. this uh, coming Friday night. Tune in and we're going to we're, um, do some different things for Good Friday. We'd love to have you join us for that. And then right after that, we're going to have a 24-hour prayer vigil that we were gonna, we had scheduled anyway. And we're going we're to do that. And so we need you to go to the webpage and sign up um, to take a slot. If Oak City is your church, we need you to take a slot. There are 30-minute slots to pray. Um, we'll have... A page that guides you and how to pray, what to pray for, some things to think about while you're praying. And we're going to kick off that prayer vigil at 8 p.m. with an Oak City Church-wide Zoom call. I've been thinking about this anyway. Like, I just want to see how many people we can get on Zoom so we can see each other's faces for a few minutes. So we're going to do that, hang out, pray together for half an hour, and then we'll kick off that prayer vigil. So um, look forward to that. And then then Saturday morning, uh, next Saturday is Easter. And so at 10 a.m., we will have our service. Now, we've been in this uh, series called The Faces of Easter and looking at different characters in the Easter story and what they teach us about following Jesus. And so from from Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, we learned about suffering. And from Pontius Pilate, we learned about faith. And last week from the crowds, uh, we learned about the courage that it takes to follow Jesus, really in standing up against the crowd at times. And this week, we're going to take a look at a scene in Luke chapter 23. So if you have a Bible, you can up to Luke chapter 23. And this is Jesus' uh, final minutes on the cross. And on either side of him are two criminals that are also being crucified. They're on crosses. They're they're likely insurrectionists. They're freedom fighters um, fighting against the oppression of Rome. And that's what Jesus is technically on the cross for. Um, and their first response to Jesus for both of them is the same as the crowds, the same as the Romans, the same as the religious leaders. It's to mock Jesus. Like if you're so powerful, why aren't you doing something about this? Um, but then one of them changes and one of them realizes that there's something terribly wrong with the scene and he rebukes the other criminal and he pleads with Jesus. And so from this, from this guy, we're going to learn about forgiveness and I have three, you know, three movements to the sermon, three points that I'm going to go through just so you know where we are. The first one is you won't ask for forgiveness if you don't think you're guilty. And I'll spend most of my time on that point. You're not going to ask for forgiveness if you don't think you're guilty. The second one is that we don't, we question whether God's punishment fits our crime. And finally, that it's never too late and you've never gone too far to be forgiven. So let me, um, let me start by reading, reading this passage from Luke chapter 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at Jesus, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked Jesus, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription on him, over him saying, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man... Has done nothing wrong. And he turned and said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Father, we pray for you uh, this morning to open our hearts and our minds and our souls to your word. Uh, you say that your word doesn't return void, and so we pray that your word would do its work in us this morning, God, that you would um, challenge us in. Places that we need to be challenged, convict us where we need to be convicted, and that we would walk away with a deeper appreciation and understanding of the grace that you 've shown towards us, we pray this in jesus name amen so you 're not going to ask for, for forgiveness um, if you don't if you don 't think you 're guilty, uh, that kind of goes without saying, but I think that 's part of what this passage wants to to deepen in us. Uh, that second criminal says to the first one. Do you not fear God? And there's something different between these two criminals, and I think that's, that's the issue. One of them fears God, and one of them doesn't. One of them doesn't think Jesus has any power. Like, if you're so powerful, get off this cross and save us. The other one recognizes Jesus has tremendous power uh, to stay on the cross. One of them thinks that he is on the cross unjustly. and The other one thinks that, that the criminals deserve to be on the cross, and Jesus is the one that is on the cross unjustly. Uh, what do you deserve? What do you deserve? What do you owe God? And what do you think God owes you? Those are, those are deep questions that I think they sit somewhere beneath the surface, and we don't ask them a lot, but this, this passage asks them. What do we owe God, and what do we think that God owes us? There's been a lot of talk in our culture the last few years about uh, privilege, you know, about checking your privilege. And I'm not going to get very deep into that, but I feel like that's a bit of what the second one is saying to the first criminal. He's saying, hey man, like you don't get it. (laughs) Check your privilege here. There's a line um, that goes, some people are born on third base and they go through life thinking that they hit a triple. And uh, it gets to the whole idea of entitlement and privilege. It's actually attributed to Barry Switzer, who was a football coach for the Oklahoma Sooners and then the, um, the Cowboys, and he said it back in the 80s because he said he, under, he like got along with his players that came from rougher backgrounds better than he got along with his players that had it easy growing up because he came from a rougher background. And he felt like some of those ones that came from an easy background didn't appreciate what they had. Um, and that's what that saying, you know, means. It's someone who was born with an advantage but believes that his success is solely based on our talent. And so there's an element of privilege and entitlement that, that all of us have some level of ingratitude that we carry around. And I think in our culture, um, particularly, there's a fair bit of almost contempt towards God uh, when it comes to what, what does God owe us and what do we owe God? But maybe even in the church, they, um, uh, a little bit of who does God think he is to judge us? And, and maybe some I have some questions that I'd like God to answer for me. Uh, they asked a, um, there's a a guy that wrote a book called The God Delusion. He's, he's a, as as atheists go, he's a pretty famous atheist named Richard Dawkins. And they asked him, um, suppose that you find out after death that God does exist, what would you say to him? And his answer was, uh, he'd ask God, why didn't you make yourself more obvious? And I thought, that's probably not a great opening line if you meet the king of the universe and find out that he's real, you know, but that was his line. And And that's not an unfair question to ask. I've asked God that question, you know, at different times. I've thought about that. I've prayed about that. Like, God, why don't you make yourself more obvious? But you can ask questions like that, like out of a fear for God. But you can also ask questions like that with a contempt towards God. And you have to discern what you're doing. Um, The Bible gives us lots of latitude to ask questions. Job asked God lots of questions, but he never curses God. Moses asks God lots of questions, but it's always clear that they're on the same team and moving in the same direction. Abraham asks God lots of questions, but Abraham is exceedingly polite to God when he asks him the questions. Uh, with this passage, there's some element of privilege involved, thinking that God owes us. Um, and that's the attitude that the first criminal expresses towards him. I am um, to try and like just flesh this out a little bit more. I'm going to introduce a concept and then explain it. And, and so, but I think we, we can think about it. Like there's clean centers and there's dirty centers, you know, there's like white collar centers and there's blue collar centers. There's like people that committed murder and people that, that had tax evasion. Like, and those are two different things for us. There's, there's San Quentin, you know, that infamous prison in California, but then there are those white collar prisons where you get to play tennis and so we separate ourselves, and most of us think of ourselves as, as white-collar sinners and not blue-collar sinners, as clean sinners and not dirty sinners. That second criminal, is he's a dirty sinner. He knows he's sinned. No one has to convince him of it. God doesn't owe him anything. He's the one that owes God. But I think most of us feel like we're, we're the first one. We're, we, we think we're clean sinners. We think we're, we're not that bad. And there are times when we're like God. What do you? What do you think you're doing here? Um, another character in the whole Easter story, prominent, is the Apostle Peter, and I think Peter um, thinks of himself as a clean sinner, and and. And Jesus goes to great lengths to make sure he understands the depth of his problem. So in a few scenes before this, Jesus is with his disciples, and they've eaten the Last Supper, and he's introduced the idea of communion, and right before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says this to his to his disciples. He said, You will all fall away from me because of because of me this night, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now the way he says this, it's not an accusatory statement. He's not saying, you're all going to fall away because of me tonight. You're all going to desert me. He doesn't say it that way. He doesn't, he's not like sad or scary. He's like, you're all going to fall away from me. It doesn't say it that way. It's almost like a a PSA, a public service announcement. Like, hey guys, just got to let you know, you're all going to fall away because of me tonight. And then he like, he even backs off it. He says, it's in the Bible. You guys can't even help it. I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's got to happen. And then I'm going to be raised up and then we're going to go hang out in Galilee. So it's all going to be okay. You know, is how he says it. Peter's response is this. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you. I'll never fall away. And this response is obnoxious on so many different levels. Like, first of all, Um, Jesus Jesus didn't make the statement in an accusatory tone, but Peter totally takes it as an accusation. And I think all of us know what it's like to to try and make a statement about how things are and try and make it in a non-accusatory way, but the person that we're talking to takes it as an accusation. You just can't help it. So Peter takes it as an accusation. And then Jesus has said... But after I'm raised, we'll hang out in Galilee. That is the far more interesting part about what Jesus said. Like, you'd think Peter would stop for a second and think, hey, Jesus, what do you mean by you're going to be raised? But he's so insulted and offended by Jesus telling him that he's going to fall away that he just blows right by that. And then he throws all the disciples under the bus and says, they're all going to fall away, but I would never do that, Jesus. Uh, so, So like I said, this is just an obnoxious statement. It's the height of arrogance. And so Jesus turns to Peter and says, now he gives him the business. Truly, I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And so Peter's about to get a lesson about who he really is. And honestly, I think that's a lesson that that most of us tuned in today, myself included could really afford to learn because we, we resist it. And, and Jesus has tried to, to give us that lesson. Like, you don't think you're that bad, but I'm telling you, like, your problem's bigger than you think it is. Uh, he takes pains to let us know that we're, we're not white-collar federal prison sinners. We're blue-collar San Quentin sinners, you know? And so this is from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' most famous sermon. And he says, you've heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Like, these are intense words. Um, And and we do that, right? I mean, you've been angry. You've... uh, You've, I mean, probably recently, in your mind at least, said that, idiot. And that's what he's saying when he says, You fool. And Jesus is saying there are consequences to that. Frankly, the only reason that you haven't gotten that angry yet this morning is because the coronavirus kept you from having to get your family ready for church and out the door on time, you know, or it happens every Sunday morning, from what I understand. And I get out the door um, when my family's still asleep so that I don't have to, like, face that. Uh, Jesus is saying, Y'all, Yo, your bar is so low. Like, don't settle for that. You didn't murder anybody. Like, Jesus is golf clapping. Congratulations. You didn't murder anybody. That's not he's saying. That's not what heaven is like. That's not what the kingdom of God is like. Heaven isn't just a place where people don't murder each other. You know, that's not the bar that God set when he created humanity. The kingdom of God is a place where people genuinely love each other and serve each other and forgive each other and are patient with each other, and that's what you're supposed to be like now. He goes on in that passage and said, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And so he's saying your bar is don't sleep around with people that you're not married to That's not heaven's bar. (laughs) The borrowers don't even think about that. And we think, well, that's, you know, difficult. But think about this. You know, in heaven, guys aren't going to give women creepy looks, you know, like a group of guys isn't going to go walking down streets of gold and pass a good looking woman and be like, oh, that's just not going to happen, you know, and vice versa. It's not going to happen. That's not what it's going to be like. We're not going to objectify each other on the basis of sex appeal or power or money, or status, all of the things that we do now. We're not going to relate to each other that way in God's kingdom. But man, you really think about that and dig into how we view each other and why and think it's, it's, that's hard. It's hard not to do that now. But he's saying like, that's the bar. His bar is a lot higher than our bar. Uh, And it's throughout the Bible. So this is Exodus 20. It's the last of the 10 commandments. And I might argue the hardest. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Um, so, you know, in our terms, you, you shouldn't be dreaming about living in that neighborhood down the street with the bigger houses and the bigger yards and whatever the things are, you know. Um, you shouldn't be thinking, man, if only my spouse was like their spouse, then I'd be happy. You shouldn't be thinking if I just had their success or their status or their vacation home or their IRA or their ox, maybe that's like their Lexus and their their donkey is like their pickup truck. I don't know what it is, but like that's not, that's not how things should be. And you can hide that on earth. You can hide that in this kingdom. You can hide coveting um, all, all you want. That for us is like a white collar sin and it's not that big of a deal because no one sees it. But But you can't there. Um, you can, you can look good on the outside here, but be a complete dumpster fire on the inside, but that doesn't work in heaven. You can't hide that stuff in heaven. You can't be that type of person in heaven and things make sense. It's something's got to change from here to there. And how's it going to change if you and I don't really think to any great depth that we need change? You're not going to ask for forgiveness. If you don't think you're guilty, you're not going to ask for help with your problem if you don't think your problem is that bad. A, f- a few more passages. Let me dig in a little bit more. This is 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulter- adulterers or men who practice homosexuality another sermon, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Like, if that's us, we don't make sense there. He said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. High bar. And we didn't meet it. And so that's what we need. Is And this is the gospel and it's Easter. Is we need to be washed and we need to be justified and we need to be sanctified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God because our problem is significant. One more passage: Galatians five: The works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. I warned you or excuse me, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't like that, so it won't make sense for us to be there if we are like that. Um, and, and then all of that is you are not who you are supposed to be, and it's it's not that close, <laughs> you know? It's not that close. Peter had to—like, Peter learned that at new depths, like the depth of his problem this night um, with Jesus, and we probably need to relearn it too. He had come a long way, but he had— a long way to go. And wherever he had come to, hadn't put a dent in his pride because he thought, well, these guys would do that, but I would never do that. And and so Jesus shows him that. And it's hard, man. He denies him. He denies him twice. And then we get to this passage in Luke chapter 22. It says, After an interval of about an hour, still another, that Peter's with insisted, saying, certainly this man, Peter, was also with Jesus because he too was a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still, while the words are still coming out of his mouth, the rooster crows. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And this is, I mean, there's somewhere in proximity where he can see him in one of these trials, and he turns and looks at Peter. And this is the most, like one of the most crushing scenes in the Bible. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he'd said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And he wept bitterly because he realized how much he owed God. Uh, He figured out there he's not a clean sinner. He's a dirty sinner. Like he needs more help than he thought that he needed. Uh, This back to Jesus and these two criminals. The other rebuked him saying, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And, and Peter got that lesson. This is, um, this is C.S. Lewis, and it's uh, something that he said about pride. He said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. And I would guess for many of us, like, pride is our big thing. Um, it's our big thing. There's, there's no such thing. I mean, it's an artificial construction to say a dirty sinner, or a clean sinner, or a white-collar, blue-kinner, San, San Quentin, or federal. It doesn't matter. Like, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and that's the point. Uh, We tend to think of it like like God grades on a curve, and Jesus got an A, and Hitler got an F, and we just need to get a C, and then we're good. And that's just how we tend to think about things. And God's saying, this is a pass-fail course. Jesus was righteous. The rest of us were unrighteous. He passed, and we failed. And when he goes on the cross, he takes our unrighteousness. And that's what gets him and keeps him on the cross is his love for us, wanting to forgive our unrighteousness, and he gives us his righteousness. And that's when when um, Paul says that we can be washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of God. That's what happens on the cross. But you're not going to ask for forgiveness if you don't really think you're guilty. And so um, you may need to, to you know take stock of how big your problem is and what you think it is and what it really is. And then we question whether God's punishment fits the crime, Uh, whether God's punishment fits the crime, because so many of these things, we just think, well, I can't help it. You know, Uh, that's a problem that I can't solve. But even if you got a problem that you can't solve, you still got a problem. And the problem has to be fixed before we make sense in God's kingdom. And so what do we deserve? What do we deserve? What do we owe God? What do we think God owes us? And I think we can we can convince ourselves that we don't deserve it because we've turned ourselves into good, respectable people who are doing our best, doing the best we can, and we just can't help it in the areas that we fall short. On that grades on a curve thing, we don't really think we got a C. We think other people got a C or probably a D. We got like a B or a B plus because we're trying really hard. And I, I tend to think, A, we give ourselves more credit than we deserve for how hard we're trying. And B, I think we get to a point where we just kind of settle in and we stop really lamenting that we're not who God created us to be. And, and we settle for, you know, for various things that we—sins that we struggle with. There's a, um, uh, a guy who was a Christian artist, and he passed away years ago. But he had, a, he had a quote that stuck with me. He said, my ambition to be a good guy is a fleshly ambition. And when Christ calls us to take up our cross and follow him, a lot of us think that means that we're supposed to lay down our vices— and cling to our virtues, but I think unless Christ is Lord of our virtues, our virtues become dangerous to us and dangerous to the people around us. And that's always stuck with me, that our virtues can be just as dangerous as our vices, and I think it's because our virtues attach themselves to our pride and give us the illusion that we're okay when our pride is a bigger problem than any of our vices ever were. Um, and and just because we can't stop committing a sin doesn't mean that the sin doesn't have consequences. You know, ask anybody that's been married to an addict that has tried really hard to stop whatever the thing is that they're addicted to. Uh, There are still consequences regardless to how hard someone has tried. Now this this second criminal that comes to this realization of, of what's going on here says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And I think like we tend to gravitate towards the paradise and what could the paradise be like? And that's an interesting word. It means garden. So the garden of God and the garden of Eden and maybe the city of God in revelation. Um, but but maybe what we should be more interested in is the with me. Today you'll be with me and what it'll be like for us to be with Jesus. When Jesus was with his disciples um, for the Last Supper, he prays at the end of that, and one of the things that he says is this. He says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus. This is eternal life, that you might know God, that you be in relationship with God. Um, and again, you think about all the stuff that goes on in our hearts that we can hide from each other, and even from ourselves, but we can't hide from God. It can stay hidden in this kingdom, but it can't stay hidden In God's kingdom. And for heaven to be heaven and us to be there, something has to change. Either us or heaven. (laughs) And that second criminal is saying, like, he's pleading with Jesus. I can't. I can't do it. I need you to change me. I need you to forgive me for those things. You know? And we need that. I um, am going through a devotional for Lent. And there was something that I read earlier this week. That struck me in light of this passage. And so this guy starts this little section. He says, why, why is sacrifice so central to God's plan of redemption and reconciliation? Why couldn't God just forgive people of their sins without sacrifice? Which is really the question does the, does the punishment fit the crime? The short answer is that sin deserves death, and only a sinless sacrifice could, could satisfy the wrath of God against sin. That again, like the wrath of God against sin, I think can be hard for us to get sometimes. Um, I Maybe we can get it because we're all living in close quarters with our family now. My... In some ways, my kingdom is my household, my home, like it's me and my wife and our four children. And I love it. Man, I love the time that we have together right now. And my kids are tuned into this. And I love having you guys home from school and not having to chase everybody around to a soccer game and us just being able to be together together. But my kingdom, like I've got a vision of what my kingdom is like, and sometimes everybody doesn't go along with the vision for my kingdom, whether they can help it or not. And then I get angry about it, and there's wrath. God, in a very mind, in an unrighteous way, in a very righteous way, God has a vision for the way he wanted his creation to be, and we've messed that up, y'all. And it is our pride and the anti-God state of mind and thinking we know better than God that messes us up, and God is just to, to have wrath against us um, for that. So... Uh, that said, this guy says, let's back up and think it through. If you think about what it means to bring reconciliation in a human relationship, think about what it means to bring reconciliation in a human relationship. You can see how sacrifice is always part of the process. Let's say I offend or hurt you in some way. It will cost something. It'll cost you something to forgive me because you will have to absorb the pain of the offense. You will have to sacrifice your right to be angry And move toward me with forgiveness. But I will have to sacrifice too. I will have to lay down my pride if I'm going to move toward you with confession and repentance. The bottom line is that without sacrifice, there's no reconciliation. And we intuitively get that. Without sacrifice, there's no reconciliation. But he says there's only hardness of heart in the death of a relationship. Without sacrifice, that's what we're left with. Hardness of heart in the death of a relationship instead of reconciliation. And I thought about that, and I thought, man, we all have relationships that have died that way because somebody wasn't willing to, to give up their right to be angry or somebody else wasn't, to, wasn't willing to give up their pride to admit that they're wrong. And either a whole relationship has gotten blown up that way or your, or your relationship, and I would argue that most of your relationships, if they're close, have had this happen to them, where they're hardened a little bit or maybe a whole lot. Because we haven't been willing to sacrifice to go through that. Reconciliation requires sacrifice. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And in heaven, there aren't going to be partially hardened relationships. (laughs) Like they're going to be the way that they were meant to be. Uh, And and we're not, that's not how we are now. Something, Something has to change We have to change. Someone better than us and more powerful than us has to change it. And we have to be willing to admit that we desperately need to be changed. I think about this a lot. And there are times where I think, well, I recognize myself when I get to heaven because there are things, so many things inside of me that I know need to be changed. When we read this criminal saying, I'm just getting what I deserve, like we got to be careful because I think our hearts can react in the same way Peter reacts saying, I'll never desert you. We can react from that with that criminal saying, well, I'm not that bad. And we blow right by the offer of being with Jesus in paradise where we become the people that we are supposed to be. And he changes us into the people that we were made to be. And we, and we resist it because we're guarding our pride. Lord, that our hearts would be broken. That we would lament the sins we willfully commit against you and each other, but we would lament just as much the sins that we unwillingly commit against you and each other because we can't stop ourselves. Lord, that we would not settle for who we are, but keep longing to be who you created us to be. Would we realize that we deserve to be left alone with our sin, um, but you've come to rescue us from our sin? to usher us into a better kingdom than we could ever create for ourselves? And would we give everything to be a part of that kingdom? There's a book that I, I spent some time in this week. I was talking to someone at church about this, and, and he had read a chapter in a book, and it was really helpful. Now, it's about two dead Russian authors, um, Dostoevsky and the other guy. and uh, But it was really interesting about these concepts. So I'm going to read a little portion, and then, and then part of it's going to come up on the screen. Um, He says in a world ruled by law grace stands as a sign of contradiction So we want fairness But the gospel gives us an innocent man nailed to a cross who cries out father forgive them We want respectability, but the gospel elevates tax collectors prodigals and samaritans (laughs) We want success, but the gospel reverses the terms moving the poor and the downtrodden to the head of the line and the wealthy and the famous to the rear of the line I read the New Testament, especially passages such as the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what I was reading from before about murder and adultery, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I read them with a different spirit now than in my adolescence. Jesus did not proclaim these exalted words so that we would furrow our brows in despair over our failure to achieve perfection. He proclaimed them to impart to us God's ideal towards which we should never stop striving and also to show us That none of us, none of us will ever reach that ideal. Then he says, the Sermon on the Mount forces us to recognize the great distance between God and us. And any attempt to reduce that distance by somehow moderating its demands misses the point altogether. And I think that's what we do. We moderate the demands. We are all desperate. And that is, in fact, the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the absolute ideal, as Tolstoy did, we have nowhere to land but with Dostoevsky in the safety net of absolute grace. And man, that's where this passage should leave us, is longing for the safety net of absolute grace and realizing nothing can save us but the grace of God. And so it's never too late. You've never gone too far to be forgiven. He said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what a statement he's saying, you are a king. He's saying, King Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The other guy said, you have no power. If you had power, you'd get down off of that cross and you'd save us. But the second guy recognizes it's power that's keeping him on the cross. He has enough power to get off the cross if he wanted to get off the cross. The power that keeps him on the cross is his love for you and for me because he did it to save us. King Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom because I'm desperate for your grace? I have a problem I can't solve and you can. So would you? And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. He makes that offer to us, Uh, and he makes it yet today when we cry out to King Jesus that today we can be with him in paradise. I want to pick up Peter for just a second. You know, Peter learns that hard lesson, and then Jesus is raised, and then he tells him, go meet me in Galilee, just like he said he's going to do. And so they get together in Galilee, and they have a breakfast of fish, which is yuck. But But that's what they do. And it says, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And like, what a line. Because he said, they'll all fall away, but I won't. I love you more than these. Simon, do you love me more than these? And Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, and Peter and Simon are the same person. Simon, I said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time. He denied him three times. He affirms him three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And Jesus said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. It's never too late, uh, you've never gone too far. To to be beyond the grace of God and to be forgiven, no, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what it is. That's what the criminal tells us. That's what Peter does. He tells us. Um, Jake and Julie and Hannah are going to come back up, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of get back to our regular. We're gonna have a few songs after I get done here, and so stick around. Um, but man, if 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 you have not received the grace of god if you have not recognized the need that you have for him if if for you you've thought of religion and christianity as this it's a it's great god grades on a curve you know i got to see, and that's enough that's not it it's pass fail jesus was righteous we were unrighteous he gets our unrighteousness and it puts him on the cross and we take his righteousness and that gets us clean before the father that's the good news Of the gospel that's what good friday. That's what easter. That's what it's all about And you got to do something about that You have to like this criminal say remember me when you come into your kingdom I know I need this. I know i'm getting what I deserve and you you're getting what I deserve And so lord, would you save me and if you've never done that before would you do that? And if you are in that place where you realize man, my pride is bigger than I thought that it was and um And so I've dressed things up, but I've kind of settled, uh, you know, would you confess that to God? There's one verse, and I'll end with this. This is from Romans 5. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I love that verse. Where sin increased, because of the law, because we understood how bad we were, grace abounds all the more. We cannot outrun the grace of God. Father, thanks for this scene thanks for um, this thief, thanks for whatever it is that gets him to come to the realization that he's getting what he deserves and pray, Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves in this criminal and that, that those who have never pleaded with you, those that think they have done enough to save themselves would realize that's impossible, that the goal isn't to moderate the standard, but the goal is to fall into the grace of God. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace towards us. Would you make us into the people that you created us to be? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.